0: Good morning. I'm James Holman from The Washington Post, and this is The Daily 202 for Tuesday, June 30th. In today's news, reopenings grind to a halt as Sunbelt states witness a surge in hospitalizations. Critical deadlines loom to extend expiring relief measures. And Joe Biden will escalate his criticism of President Trump's handling of the crisis. But first, the big idea. When the first coronavirus cases appeared in Chicago back in January, they bore the same genetic signatures as a germ that emerged in China weeks before. But as Egon Ozer, an infectious disease specialist at Northwestern, examined the genetic structure of virus samples from local patients, he noticed something different. A change in the virus was appearing again and again. This mutation associated with the outbreaks in Europe and New York City, eventually took over Chicago. By May, it was found in 95% of all the genomes that he sequenced. At a glance, the mutation seemed trivial. About 1,300 amino acids serve as building blocks for a protein on the surface of the virus. In the mutant virus, the genetic instructions for just one of those amino acids, number 614, Switched in the new variant from a D, which is shorthand for aspartic acid, to a G, which is short for glycine. But the location of that mutation was significant because the switch occurred in the part of the genome that codes for the all important spike protein. The spike protein is the protruding structure that gives the coronavirus its crown like profile, which also gives it its name, the crown virus. And allows it to enter human cells the way a burglar picks a lock. And its ubiquity at this point is undeniable. Of the approximately 50,000 genomes of the new virus that researchers worldwide have uploaded into a shared database, about 70% carry the new mutation, which is officially designated as D614G, but known more familiarly to the scientists on the front lines of this fight by one letter, G. G hasn't just dominated the outbreak in Chicago, it has taken over the world. And now scientists are racing to figure out what it means and how to stop it. Two of our star science writers, Sarah Kaplan and Joel Achenbach, report that at least four lab experiments suggest that this mutation makes the virus significantly more infectious, although none of that work has yet been peer-reviewed. Another unpublished study led by federal scientists at Los Alamos National Laboratory asserts that patients with the G variant actually have more virus in their bodies, making them more likely to spread it to others. The mutation does not does not appear to make people sicker, but a growing number of scientists worry that it is making the virus more contagious. The scramble to unravel this mutation mystery embodies the challenges of science during the coronavirus pandemic. With millions of people infected and thousands dying every day around the world, researchers must strike a high-stakes balance between getting information out quickly and making sure that it's right. The burglary analogy is one I found very helpful because it really helps conceptualize what this virus is doing to our bodies. Joel likes to say that the coronavirus can be thought of as an extremely destructive burglar. Unable to live or reproduce on its own, it breaks into human cells and co opts their biological machinery to make thousands of copies of itself. That leaves a trail of damaged tissue and triggers an immune system response that, for some people, for many people, can be fatal the so called cytokine storm. This replication process is messy. Even though it has a proofreading mechanism for copying its own genome, the coronavirus frequently makes mistakes. Those are the mutations. The vast majority of mutations have no effect at all on the behavior of the virus, but few genetic mutations could be more significant than the ones that affect the spike protein. That is the virus's lockpick, the most powerful tool against us. The protein attaches to a receptor on respiratory cells called ACE2, which opens the cell and lets the virus slip inside us. The more effective the spike protein, the more easily the virus can break into the bodies of its hosts. Even when the original variant of the virus emerged in Wuhan, China, it was obvious that the spike protein was already quite effective. But it could have been even better. The spike protein for the coronavirus has two parts that don't always hold together well when you look at it under a microscope. In the version of the virus that arose in China, the outer part, which the virus needs to attach to a human receptor, frequently broke off. Equipped with this faulty lockpick, the virus had a harder time invading host cells. Studying both variations of the gene using a proxy virus in a petri dish of human cells, Hirun Cho a virologist at Scripps Research, found that viruses with the G variant had more spike proteins and the outer parts of those proteins were less likely to break off. In that research, the virus was 10 times more infectious with that mutation. The good news is this. The mutation does not seem to lead to worse outcomes for patients, nor does it alter the virus's response to antibodies from patients who had the D variant, suggesting, again, this is great news, that vaccines being developed based on the original Wuhan version of the virus will be effective against the more infectious European strain. Identifying emerging mutations allows researchers to track their spread. Knowing what genes affect how the virus transmits enables public health officials to tailor their efforts to contain it. Once therapeutics and vaccines are distributed on a large scale, having a baseline understanding of the genome will help pinpoint when drug resistance inevitably starts to evolve. None of this, unfortunately, is a magic bullet. But experts say that understanding how the virus works will help respond better. Still, it's a race against time. And right now, the virus is winning. And that's the big idea. Here are three other headlines that should be on your radar this Tuesday. Number one. U.S. deaths are approaching 125,000. We expect to pass that number today. And the total number of confirmed cases here is top 2.5 million amid worsening outbreaks in Florida, Texas, and Arizona that are straining hospital capacity to the limit. Jacksonville, the largest city in Florida and the host of the Republican National Convention in late August, announced that masks will now be mandatory in public and indoor locations. Vice President Pence plans to go ahead with planned travel this week to Florida and Arizona, even though cases are spiking. But Arizona saw another record high in hospitalizations days after Trump visited the state for a raucous indoor rally where almost no one wore a mask. Florida's rolling seven-day average has risen by 102% since a week ago. Trump's former FDA commissioner, Scott Gottlieb, warned last night that the surging number of cases could result in nearly half our country infected with the virus by the end of the year, and overall deaths are likely to return to more than 1,000 per day, he predicts. In fact, the number two at the CDC told the Journal of the American Medical Association yesterday that the U.S. has, quote, way too much virus to be able to contain it anymore. And Shukat said that we're no longer in a position like New Zealand or Singapore or South Korea where a new case can be rapidly identified and all the contacts are traced and people are isolated who are sick and people who are exposed are quarantined. And that's how you keep things under control. She said, instead, we have way too much virus across the country for that right now. She described herself as, very discouraged, and added, this is really the beginning. I think there was a lot of wishful thinking around the country that, hey, it's summer, everything's going to be fine. But she added that she's seeing quote, a lot of worrisome factors over the last week or so, and added, quote, we are not even beginning to be over this. And we're seeing that on the front lines. Los Angeles County health officials have issued a dire warning in the last 12 hours that conditions are rapidly deteriorating in the nation's most populous county. As the virus spreads quickly, officials are warning that both public and private hospitals in the City of Angels may soon be overwhelmed, leading to triage. One factor that's alarming leaders in Southern California is that coronavirus patients are crossing the U.S.-Mexico border to seek medical care. Now, a lot of them are Americans seeking U.S. treatment. But the head of California's Emergency Medical Services Authority describes the stream of patients crossing the border back and forth as, quote, pouring gasoline on the fire. Arizona Governor Doug Ducey pushed back his plans to reopen public schools and has banned gatherings of more than 50 people. He also has closed down bars, nightclubs, movie theaters, and water parks, all of which he recently reopened, as we discussed last week, warning residents that we can no longer be under any illusion that the virus is going to go away on its own. Other hard-hit states, including Tennessee and Georgia, have put in place new stay-at-home orders or extended them. There are so many unsettling stories just popping up across the country that it's hard to keep up. More than 200 people in West Virginia were advised yesterday to quarantine after possibly being exposed to the virus while working out at a gym. New Jersey Governor Phil Murphy says plans to allow indoor dining are going to be postponed indefinitely. While New York Governor Andrew Cuomo says his administration is reconsidering whether indoor dining can restart safely in New York City next week which was going to happen as part of its phase three. Now, this is a big blow for restaurant owners in the tri-state region who've been preparing to reopen by hiring back staff that they'd laid off and restocking their inventory as they teeter on the precipice of bankruptcy. A lot of that food may now need to be thrown away. And Broadway's main theaters all said yesterday that they're going to remain shuttered until at least January and probably longer. Number two. A new survey of the CEOs of our nation's largest companies show that the people who would know best expect the economic fallout of this pandemic to last through 2021. Nearly a third of CEOs surveyed expect the harm to last even longer. Democratic congressional leaders Nancy Pelosi and Chuck Schumer called yesterday on Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell to start negotiations on a new coronavirus relief bill. While the House passed a massive package 45 days ago, Senate Republicans in the White House have stalled it and have eyed late July as the time frame for putting together something new if they do anything at all. Congress is in session this week, but lawmakers are planning to leave D.C. to go on a two-week recess for the 4th of July amid this crisis of historic proportions. There are no plans to pass any legislation before they go on recess. A McConnell spokesman said if there's another package, McConnell will develop it in his office when he gets back from the vacation. But as the leader kicks the can down the road, several critical deadlines are looming when relief measures for the American people will expire. Enhanced unemployment benefits passed as part of the $2 trillion CARES Act in March expire on July 31st. The Small Business Paycheck Protection Program will stop accepting new loan applications today, even though about $100 billion is left in the program. Yesterday, in another move to try to respond to the crisis, the House passed a bill called the Emergency Housing Protection and Relief Act that includes more than $100 billion in emergency rental assistance and homeowner assistance, a moratorium on evictions and foreclosures, and billions to respond to and prevent outbreaks among homeless people, among other provisions. But Senate Republicans say that bill is dead on arrival. Meanwhile, there are millions of folks struggling to make ends meet and feed their kids. A journalist in Oklahoma City tweeted a picture at 10.30 p.m. on Sunday night of a long line of people who were literally camping out, camped out, outside the unemployment office, spending the night there because they haven't been able to get benefits that they are entitled to, and they haven't been able to get a human being on the phone from the state to get their benefits. So many of our fellow citizens are being failed by government in this hour of need. Number three. In Wilmington, Delaware today, Joe Biden will hold one of his first campaign events since the start of the pandemic to escalate his criticism of Trump's mishandling of the pandemic and detail his own agenda to stem the virus if he's elected. Biden will tie together a raft of proposals he's offered since January, including a plan to provide free testing and treatment for anyone who gets the disease. He will critique the president's failure to, as he will put it, quote, level with the American people, his inability to provide testing and treatment, shortfalls in securing a supply chain for personal protective equipment, which there are still shortages of, and failures to protect workers, older Americans, and small businesses. Biden's plan emphasizes the need to control the outbreak as a way of giving Americans confidence so they can go back to work and send their kids back to school. Biden proposes a national board for coronavirus testing that would oversee a surge in the production of testing kits and ensure adequate lab capacity to process results. Those with COVID-19 or caring for loved ones with the disease would receive guaranteed emergency paid leave, allowing them to take time off from work with minimal financial impact. Biden says all essential workers should receive childcare assistance and an unspecified pay boost. Biden also wants to provide assistance to older Americans and increase monthly social security checks during the emergency by $200. It must be noted, though, that the former vice president has not outlined how all of these programs would be paid for, and he does not plan to do so today. And that's The Daily 202 for Tuesday, June 30th. Thanks for listening. I'm James Holman. Stay safe. I'll talk to you tomorrow.